All right, let's talk about Robert Browning. Uh, Robert Browning was a contemporary of Alfred Lord Tennyson, but unlike Tennyson, he was not a particularly famous poet during most of his lifetime. He he became more uh, well-known at the end of his life. But for most of his life, he was known because he was the husband of Elizabeth Barrett Browning, who was a very, very famous poet. Um, she was uh, uh, older than he was and, and had health problems. They died. She died uh, well before him. Uh, but he was more famous for that than for his own poetry. But his poetry is very important in the development of English poetry. It's kind of a hinge between the Romantic poets and the Modernist poets. Now, we've seen that the Romantic poets, uh, like Wordsworth and Keats, uh, write very much in in first person. Uh, you know, always the, the speaker of a poem is technically distinct from the author of the poem, but that distinction gets very blurry in Romantic poetry. I mean, when Wordsworth is talking about visiting T- Tintern Abbey, he actually visited Tintern Abbey. Now, he, he's forming that into poetry, but it seems very much coming right out of his own mind and experience. Uh, and Browning wrote poetry, something like that, early in his career, but he very soon uh, became fond of the dramatic monologue. That is, a character who is speaking the poem. So it's not, it's very clearly not the the poet who is speaking, but a persona, uh, a character that is speaking. And as we'll see, um, uh, Browning makes great use of that in his own poetry. So let's look at his first uh, his first poem, Porphyria's Lover. Now it starts out with a very romantic kind of setting, this kind of uh, 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 melodramatic weather. The rain set early in tonight, the sullen wind was soon awake. It tore the elm chops down for spite, and did its worst to vex the lake. I listened with heart fit to break, when glided in Prophyria. Straight she shut the cold out and the storm, and kneeled and made the cheerless grate blaze up, and all the cottage warm. So the first thing we get, we get this image of this this dark uh, world, the storm, it's cold, he's, he's alone, and then his lover Prophyria comes in, and she shuts out the cold, she stokes the fire, uh, she is, you know, got the sense of bringing in warmth and happiness into into his life. Um, and later on, she, un, her, her hat, and, and let the damp hair fall, she untied her hat and let the damp hair fall. At last, she sat down by my side and called me. When no voice replied, she put my arm about her waist and made her smooth white shoulder bare, and all her yellow hair displaced, and stooping made my cheek lie there, and spread o'er all her yellow hair, murmuring how she loved me. Uh, now, a couple of things interesting. Notice that when no voice replied, she called to him, but he doesn't reply, so she actually puts her, his arm around her waist, and again, all this emphasis on her hair, her yellow hair, um, and it's, she's saying that she loved him, uh, that she, too weak for all her heart's endeavor to set its struggling passion free from pride and vainer ties dissever and give herself to me forever. So now he says that she says she loves me, but she's too weak 
to set her struggling passion free from pride um, and give herself to me forever. Now, but uh, but passion sometime would prevail, nor could tonight's gay feast restrain a sudden thought of one so pale for love of her and all in vain. So he doesn't feel like she's giving him her full love. He, she, won't, she won't marry him. She won't give herself to me forever. Um, and it's not clear why that is, um, but that's why he seems reticent here. And then we get a sudden thought that he has. He said, so she was come through wind and rain. Be sure I looked up at her eyes, happy and proud. At last I knew Prophyria worshipped me. Surprise made my heart swell, and still it grew while I debated what to do. So we're getting this, this moment of, he says, oh, she worships me. It's like he suddenly realizes that, you know, that, uh, that, that her, her love for him. That moment she was mine, mine, fair, perfectly pure and good. I found a thing to do, and all her hair in one long yellow string, I wound three times her little throat around and strangled her. Okay, oh, hey, wait, what the hell just happened? Um, we've got the, you know, suddenly we've got this murder scene. Um, again, this is a wonderful thing you can do with, you know, obviously, you, you can't, uh, hopefully, uh, somebody who had actually done this wouldn't write a poem about it, but you can use a, a dramatic monologue to be in the side of this very disturbed character um, who strangles her with her yellow hair, and at the moment, that he, there seems to be resentment about her not committing fully, but then he feels like maybe she is, she worships me, and what should I do? Well, I'll kill her. No pain, felt she. I am quite sure she felt no pain. Uh, really? Again, this is the thing that happens in a dramatic monologue. So she didn't feel any pain. He's trying. Who is he trying to convince? Well, he's trying to convince himself. I don't think he convinces us. As a shut bud that holds a bee, I warily oped her lids. Again, so he opened, she died, and then he opens up her eyelids. Again laughed the blue eyes without a stain, and I untightened next the tress about her neck. Her cheek once more blushed bright beneath my burning kiss. I propped her head up as before, only this time my shoulder bore her head, which droops upon it still. The smiling, rosy little head, so glad it, ha it has its utmost will, that all it scorned at once is fled, and I, its love, am gained instead. So now she has this moment that he thinks she worships me, he's killed her, and now he's kind of frozen that moment. This I, its love, am gained instead. I'm, I'm her. I'm everything to her now. She's not going to leave me, and she has given herself to me forever now. Um, Says so Prophyria's love. She guessed not how her darling one, her darling one wish would be heard, and thus we sit together now, and all night long 
we have not stirred, and yet God has not said a word. Um, now, a couple of things about, first of all, that, that last line, God has not said a word, um, is that God hasn't punished me? Or God hasn't celebrated me. I mean, it depends on how really crazy the guy is here. Uh, he seems to think this is a completely logical thing to do. Another thing I notice in just in the opening lines of the poem, when it talks about the the effect of the storm, it says that the storm, uh, the 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 sullen wind was soon awake. It tore the elm tops down for spite. Uh, that's an I think an interesting detail. And I think it fits in with what's happening here. He is seems to be killing her, killing Porphyria for spite. Um, so this is a, a an early example of the uh, Browning's dramatic monologue. He gets into a very idiosyncratic, in this case, very disturbed character's mind uh, and presents it. And we have to kind of figure out his motives. And the, the motives are actually, I think, not totally clear. Why is he doing it? Well, he's crazy is one answer. Uh, is it for spite? Is it to preserve this moment? Um, it, it allows it, one thing about a dramatic monologue is that it, the irony can allow us to see things the character doesn't, and yet still to have things that are opaque or mysterious to us. Now let's look at uh, perhaps Browning's most famous poem, My Last Duchess. And with this, as with many of his dramatic monologues, it is very loosely based on an historical character, somebody who actually lived, uh, though he fictionalizes it, obviously. So, that's my last duchess, painted on the wall, looking as if she were alive. I call that piece a wonder now. Frau Pandolf's hands worked busily a day, and there she stands. Will it please you sit and look at her? I said, Frau Pandolf, by design, for never read strangers like you that pictured countenance, the depth and passion of its earnest glance, but to myself they turned, since none puts by the curtain I have drawn for you but I, and seemed as they would ask me, if they durst, how such a glance came there. So, all right, let's get the dramatic situation here. We get the, the this Duke, uh, Ferreira, uh, and he's showing off this painting of his late wife, his last duchess. Um, they're, you know, painted on the wall. The, the artist was Fra Pandolf. Uh, he spent, uh, you know, a day painting her, and there she is. Um, and notice that he's, uh, look, she looks as if she's alive, and he says, none puts by the curtain I have drawn for you but I. So nobody gets to see her unless I draw the curtain. Um, he says, uh, and everybody wants to know what, how that, that look on her face, that uh, the expression, how did that come there? So not the first are you in turn and ask thus. Sir, t'was not her husband's presence only called that spot of joy into the duchess' cheek. So she looks happy. It wasn't just because she was looking at her husband. Perhaps Frau Pandolf chanced to say, her mantle laps over my lady's wrist too much, or paint must never hope to, uh, to reproduce the faint half-flush that dies along her throat. 
Such stuff was courtesy, she thought, and cause enough for calling up that spot of joy. So why did she look so joyful? She said, well, it wasn't just me. You know, she she would feel joyful if you know Fra Pandolf, you know, said that you know she you know you look, uh, I could never catch your beauty in painting, and that that would please her. Uh, she had a heart, how shall I say, too soon made glad, too easily impressed. She liked whatever she looked on, and her looks went everywhere. Um. Now, there are a couple of ways you can read this. Is this does this mean she was unfaithful? You know, she had a wandering eye, uh, or just she, that she was easily flattered? Um, he's building up a, a, a portrait of her, um, and in some ways, kind of disappointing to him. They um, sir, it was all one. So she, you know, she made no distinctions. My favor at her breast. The dropping of the daylight in the west, the bough of cherries some officious fool broke in the orchard for her, the white mule she rode round with she rode with round the terrace, all and each would draw from her alike the approving speech or blush at least. So everything she so she always looked joyful like this. Anything and it didn't matter what it was. It was not just my favor, but seeing the sunset. Uh, a, a guy brings her a, a bough of cherries, and she likes that. The white mule that she would ride around on, anything would make her smile and joyful and give that look that you can see in the painting. She thanked men, good, but thanked somehow, I know not how, as if she ranked my gift of nine hundred of a 900-years-old name with anybody's gift. So now we see this jealousy coming in, uh, you know, it wasn't just me that made her look joyful. Anything would make, joy, look, make, would make her look joyful. And she didn't make any distinction. Somebody, you know, somebody gives her a bow of cherries, and she thinks, she's as pleased by that as being married to me. What's wrong with her? You know, who'd stoop to blame this sort of trifling, even had you skill in speech, which I have not, to make your will quite clear to such a one and say, just this or that in you disgusts me, here you miss or here exceed the mark. And if she let herself be lessened so, nor plainly set her wits to, your, to yours forsooth and made excuse, even then would be some stooping. So now he's talking about, again, this, the, the syntax, I think, gets very convoluted here because he's, he's being kind of indirect and also kind of fumbling uh, this. He says, well, look, even if I could have explained to her that, you know, what I wanted, you know, that uh, you're, you're miss how you're missing the mark, uh, she might not have let herself be lessened. She might not have learned the thing. Um, and says, but even if I could have done that, that would have been some stooping. He says, and I choose never to stoop. So he would not lower himself to tell her, you know, you shouldn't be smiling at every man who passes. Or I'm your husband. Uh, that would that would uh, demean him to even tell her that. Oh, sir, she smiled, no doubt, whene'er I passed her. But who passed without much the same smile? This grew. I gave commands. Then all smiles stopped together. So, what happened? Well, he put an end to his last duchess. Uh, 
And notice that it's not, there's no indication that she was actually unfaithful to him. She was, she just took delight in things other than him. This, uh, you know, it's not that she smiled just at me, but she, everyone had the same smile, including, including the white mule that she liked to ride on. And this grew, this got worse and worse. I, and notice his very kind of circumspect language here. I gave commands, then all smiles stopped together. I put a stop to those smiles. There she stands as if alive. So we're back kind of at the beginning. Yeah, that's what she looked like when she alive. Will it please you rise? We'll meet the company below, then. I repeat, the Count, your master's known munificence, is ample warrant that no just pretense of mine for dowry will be disallowed, though his fair daughter's self, as I avowed, at starting is my object. Nay, we'll go together down, sir. Uh... So now we know that the guy he's talking to and showing him this picture of the last duchess is the one negotiating the marriage for his new duchess, the Count, your master. He's going to marry this woman, and he's mentioning the dowry. Uh, that is the money that uh, that he will get for marrying this, the, the Countess's daughter. Um, and so all of this becomes even more sinister as kind of a warning. It says, look what happened to my last wife when she was too friendly with everybody. He's very, he's not so subtly making that point on this poor negotiator. Um, and it ends. Notice Neptune, though, taming a seahorse, thought a rarity which Klaus of Innsbruck cast in bronze for me. Um, so here we get, it's a, actually, in some ways, you think about this as, as like and different to Porphyria's lover. Both of them are this uh, man who kills the woman that he ostensibly loves. Uh, and both of them are kind of little psychological studies and what's going wrong. The uh, Porphyria's lover seems more kind of mentally unhinged. I mean, you can't figure out why he did it because he's crazy. Well, the, the, the Duke, Ferreira, may be cra- a little crazy too, but I, you make his motives are pretty clear. And but that makes them no less monstrous. He wants her all to himself. That's my last duchess. He wants to own her. Um, and it, she would smile for anyone else. That wasn't acceptable. Uh, and she should know that. He shouldn't even have to tell her. And so he gets rid of her. Um, it tells a wonderful little story. And it also gives a wonderful psychological study. And again, you can see here... This is completely different from a romantic poem where Wordsworth is talking directly about his own experience. This is this is a drama. Uh, this is like a Shakespearean soliloquy where Browning is creating a picture of a uh, of a character for us through his words. Now, one thing I would notice here is that the form of this poem is in rhymed couplets. It's iambic uh, pentameter, but it, it rhymes. Um, but the rhymes don't stand out very much. If you read this through, it you don't really notice the rhymes, and that's because so many of the lines are enjammed. That is, they the the sentence runs on to the next line. Like, look at the uh, uh, the second line. I call that piece a wonder now. Fra Pandolf's hands 
worked busily a day, and there she stands. All right, so call and hands are both in jammed lines. They kind of uh, uh, go over into the next line. And he does that very regularly. Um, you know, the next next couple of lines. Uh, Will it please you sit and look at her? I sit, uh, her. I said for Prand, for Pandolf by design. For never read strangers like you that pictures that pictured countenance. Again, the said and read line rhyme gets buried because of the very careful enjambment. Uh, it's a, an example of how how technically proficient Browning's poetry could be. Now, one of the effects of a dramatic monologue is that it forces the reader to become something of a detective. We have to be engaged with the poem and figuring out, deducing from what the speaker says what they mean. There's almost always some kind of dramatic irony created uh, that that we have to, uh, again, see beyond their words. Um, that's not something that happens a lot in, in the Romantic poets. Uh, they're much more straightforward than that. But as we'll see, it, it's something that uh, will carry on into modernist poetry. All right, let's look at uh, The Bishop Orders His Tomb at St. Praxid's Church. Now, here again, uh, we're taking a uh, real historical figure and creating this dramatic monologue for them. Um, and it begins, the, the bishop's first line, Vanity, saith the preacher, vanity. Draw round my bed. Is Anselm keeping back? Nephews, sons mine? Ah, oh God, I know not. Well, she, men, would have to be your mother once. Old Gandalf envied me, so fair she was. Now, let's just look at those those opening lines, a couple of interesting things here. First of all, the very first word of the poem is vanity, and that is a, a thematic keynote in the po- whole poem. Uh, the speaker does not realize his own vanity, uh, but the reader will, if they read carefully, uh, that this bishop is very vain. And draw around my bed. He's ordering his tomb, so this must be, you know, if not his deathbed, he, he's not long for this world. One of his sons, Anselm, uh, is he there? Nephews, sons mine. Well, are, are they nephews or, or sons? Or he calls them nephews, but they're really his sons. He's a bishop. What's he doing with sons? Uh, he's supposed to take a vow of, of chastity. Uh, but he says, well, she... This woman was uh, would have to be your mother once. And old Gandalf envied me, so fair she was. So we get, the, again, a little history here. He's got, he has these uh, presumably illegitimate children, uh, and their mother was this beautiful woman, so beautiful that uh, Gandalf, who we find out is another uh, uh, bishop, uh, envied her. So... We get all of these kinds of, of ironies just in these opening lines. This is a bishop who has children, who's talking about vanity and seems to demonstrate it, uh, and who has this rivalry with old Gandalf. Um, so and he's talking about, uh, you know, line 15, you know, about this tomb of mine. I fought with tooth and nail to save my niche. You know, old Gandalf cozened me. Despite my care, shrewd was that snatch from out the corner south. He graced with, car- with uh, his carrion with, God cursed the same. So 
he's in this competition. Old Gandalf, he got the best spot to have his tomb in in the chapel, right at, at Saint Praxed's Church. You know, uh, well, we'll have to come up with a uh, with a different one. Um, and he's telling them all about what he wants. The line twenty nine, the peach blossom marble, all the rare, the ripe, as fresh poured red wine of a mighty pulse. Old Gandalf with his paltry onion stone put me where I may look at him. Um, True peach rosy and flawless, how I earned the prize. So now he's obsessing about the materials. You know, it's going to be this peach blossom marble, not this paltry onion stone that Gandalf has. And put my tomb where old Gandalf can see it so he can see that my tomb is so much better than his. Um, He also tells them, line 36, Go dig the white grape vineyard where the oil press stood. Drop water gently till the surface sink. And if you find, ah, God, I know it, I know not, I, bedded in store of rotten fig leaf soft, fig leaves soft, and corded up in a tight olive frail, some lump, ah, God, of lapis lazuli, big as a Jew's head, cut off at the nape, blue as a vein o'er the Madonna's breast. Sons, all I have I bequeath to you. Um, So now he's telling where they can dig up this treasure, this lapis lazuli, this precious blue stone, um, that, uh, again, he wants this this decoration for his tomb. And again, the, the point of it is this rivalry. Line 50, for Gandalf shall not choose but see and burst. That is, you know, burst with envy. Swift as a weaver's shuttle, fleet are years. Man goeth to the grave, and where is he? Did I say did I say basalt for my slab sons? Now look at again the irony here. He, he, he's dropping in. You know, he starts quoting a Bible verse, and here he is. You know, the, man's life is short, but he doesn't take any spiritual lesson from that. He's saying, "Oh wait, now did I tell you that? I, did I say I wanted basalt for my slab? Says black. Twas ever antique black. I meant I want I want black marble, not basalt." How else shall ye contrast my frieze to come beneath the bas-relief in bronze ye promised me, those pans and nymphs ye wot of, and perchance some tripod, trius or vase or so, the Savior at his Sermon on the Mount, Saint Praxid in a glory, and one pan ready to twitch the nymph's last garment off, and Moses with the tablets. Now, Look at the, the, the scenes they're going to put on this bas-relief, this, this uh, sculpture on the tomb. We get things, it's a weird mixture of things. We got the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus giving the Sermon on the Mount, St. Praxid, the saint of the church in, in their glory, and Pan, ready to twitch the nymph's last garment off. Pan is from Greek mythology. They're, they have uh, the upper body of a man and the lower body of a goat. And they're famously um, sexualized and always, you know, raping young nymphs. And so here we have the the, the pan twitching the la- the nymph's last garment off. That's a weird juxtaposition with the Sermon on the Mount, uh, but it kind of fits for the the, the bishop here. His uh, his very worldly concerns in uh, in a very religious office, and he starts talking to them, line seventy six, about carving his epitaph. 
a choice Latin, picked phrase, Tully's every word, not gaudy wear like Gandalf's second line. Tully, my masters, uh, Ulupian serves his need. Um, so now his, he's, you know, you've got to get the best Latin epitaph for me, not, not a gaudy, silly thing like Gandalf had for his uh, epitaph. Um, and it says, uh, line 85, for as I lie here, hours of the dead night, dying in state and by such slow degrees, I fold my arms as if they clasped a crook, or a, the bishop's staff, and stretch my feet forth straight as stone can point, and let the bedcloths for a mort cloth drop into great lamps and folds of sculptor's work. And as yon tapers dwindle and strange thoughts grow, with a certain humming in my ears about the life before I lived this life, and this life too, popes, cardinals, and priests, St. Praxit at his sermon on the mount, your tall, pale mother, with her eyes talk, with her talking eyes and newfound agate urns as fresh as day and marbles language, Latin pure, discreet. Now, one thing to notice about the language here is he has these long, run-on, rambling sentences, uh, and that's deliberate. That's it, we're, we're getting a kind of a stream of consciousness of all these things he's remembering. Notice uh, again the details that that. Come, keep going back. His your tall, pale mother with her talking eyes, um, uh, and he says, "Evil and brief hath been my pilgrimage." Is how he sums up his life. Um, he's he's lived too short, and it's been evil. Um, la all lapis, all sons, else I give the Pope my villas. That is, you know, if you don't use the lapis lazuli on my tomb, I'll, I'll, I'll disinherit you and, you know, let the church have all of my wealth. Um, and it, it, near the end of the poem, he's, he's asking, I said, I must ask, do I live? Am I dead? He's in this kind of waiting, knowing he's going to die, waiting for death. There, leave me, there. For you have stabbed me with ingratitude to death. You wish it. God, you wish it. Stone grit stone, a crumble, clammy squares which sweat as if a corpse they keep were oozing through, and no more lapis to delight the world. Now he's imagining, these. you you don't give a damn about my tomb. You're going to put me in some cheap thing, you know, with the, 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 the stone uh, uh, sweats as if, the, as, he says, as if the corpse were oozing through. Well, go, I bless you. Fewer tapers there, but in a row. And going, turn your backs. I like departing altar ministrants, and leave me in my church, the church for peace, that I may watch at leisure if he leers, old Gandalf, at, at me from his onion stone, as still he envied me, so fair she was. So this is a portrait. Now, we, we don't get a murderer here, uh, but we get a uh, somebody who is supposed to be a, you know, a moral pillar, but is obviously just obsessed with lust and vanity and greed, uh, and you pick up all of this, you know, from his his monologue. Uh, you, you can you read between the lines and see the kind of petty motivations he has, the way he can't get over this rivalry he has with a dead man, 
um, the way he can't get over um, feeling proud of this relationship that he had, uh, illicit relationship he had with a woman who is dead. Um, in some ways, he is he's spiritually dead uh, before he ever is physically buried. And again, the very first word of the poem is vanity. Uh, so here we get, again, Browning using that dramatic monologue form to create a fascinating psychological portrait. Now, Fra Lippo Lippi is, again, a, an historical figure, a painter, that Browning is using as a vehicle for his dramatic monologue. And this one, again, the, the dramatic situation, we we find out that Fra Lippo Lippi is a, is a little drunk, he gets caught by the, the, the cops, basically, and um, they're, you know, uh, grabbing him by the throat. He says, take your hands away from that's fiddling on my throat. And he mentions that his, his patron is Cosimo of the Medici. Now, the, the, the Medici were the rulers of Florence. They were the richest family uh, and they were great patrons of the art. And if, you know, now the, when the guards... Nightwatch knows that he works for the Medici, they're going to back off. And in fact, they do, but he goes on talking to them. Um, he says, yes, I am the painter, since you style me so. Uh, and he's going to tell us the the story. Well, first of all, how did he get here? Well, he, you know, he was supposed to be painting, but he couldn't paint all night. So he got out and they found him in an alley uh, where there are prostitutes. And uh, that tells us something about his uh, his character. Um, but we get the the story of his life that he begins to tell here. Look at line 81. I was a baby when my mother died and father died and left me in the street. I starved there, God knows how, a year or two on fig skins, melon parings, rinds and shucks, refuge and rubbish. One fine frosty day, my stomach being empty as your hat, the wind doubled me up and down I went. Old Aunt Lapatia, trust me with her with one hand, its fellow was a, sting, uh, a stinger as I knew, and so along the wall, over the bridge, by the straight cut to the convent. Six words there, while I stood munching my first bread that month. So, boy, you're minded, quoth the good fat f father. So, there's an orphan, his parents died, he was a beggar on the streets, his aunt, you know, didn't want to try to support him anymore, so she took him to the convent, gave him to the... So he he's kind of in the church without ever really wanting to be. As, as he says, they made a monk of me at eight years old. Uh, says, line 103, Three. Well, sir, I found in time, you may be sure, t'was not for nothing. The good uh, bellyful, the warm surge and rope that goes all round, and day-long blessed idleness beside. Let's see what the urchin's fit for. So now he's got, he's got food, he's got clothes, he's got shelter, but they want to find what he's fit for. And it turns out that he's very good at... Uh, watching folks' faces to know who will fling the bit of half-stripped grape bunch he desires and who will curse or kick him for his pains. So he learned to be terribly observant when he was begging because he had to be able to tell by people's faces who was kind and who was cruel, what, the, what their characters were just by observing them. Um, 
line 125, he learns the look of things. And nonetheless, for admonition from the hunger pinch, I had a store of such remarks, be sure, which after I found leisure turned to use. I drew men's faces on my copybooks. So it is the, the copybook, the, the, the textbook that he was supposed to be using to learn the alphabet. Um, he said, uh, found eyes and nose, nose and chin for A's and B's and made a string of pictures of the world betwixt the ins and outs of verbs and nouns. So even in, in, uh, in English class, he was just drawing. You know, imagine that. And we get the course of his career. He starts off, um, uh, first he would draw every sort of monk, line 145, the black and white. I drew them, fat and lean. Then folk at church, from good old gossips waiting to confess their cribs of barrel droppings, candle ends, to the breathless fellow at the altar foot, fresh from his murder. So uh, this, the whole range of humanity from uh, old uh, gossips who really don't have any sins to confess to uh, an actual murderer there in the church uh, who was seeking sanctuary. Um, so he draws all of these, and he gets a, a response to his work starting around line 166. The monks closed in a circle and praised loud till checked, taught what to see and what not to see, being simple bodies. That's the very man. Look at the boy who stoops to pat the dog. The woman's like the prior's niece, who comes to care about his asthma. It's the life. So they're impressed. They can see the resemblance to all of these real people. Um, and says the prior, that's the, the general reaction, but the, but the prior and the learned pulled a face line 175, and stopped all that in no time. How? What's here? Quite from the mark of painting. Bless us all. Faces, arms, legs, and bodies, like the true uh, as, as much as P as MP. It's devil's game. Your business is not to catch men with, uh, with show, with homage to the perishable clay, but lift them over it. Ignore it all. Make them forget there's such a thing as flesh. Your business is to paint the souls of men. So this is, uh, interestingly, uh, Browning is putting this in, in the context of art history. This is the shift from the medieval to the Renaissance conceptions of art. So the prior says, this is all too realistic. You're actually showing the physical reality of things. That's not what you're supposed to do. That, that's, that's a devil's game. You're supposed to be painting the souls of men. Um, let me say, why, line 191, why put all thoughts of praise out of your head uh, and with wonder at lines, colors, and whatnot? Um, so, yeah, th these, th how are they going to know to praise God if they're looking at how beautiful the picture is? Um, paint the soul, never mind the legs and arms. Rub all out. Try it a second time. Oh, that... Uh, that white, smallish female with the breast? She's just my niece. Herodias, I would say. Now, Herodias is um, uh, Salome, who, uh, you know, so he's painted the prior's niece as a, as a sexual character in a, from a Bible story. Um, he says, have it all out. They want to get rid of this. And then we get uh, 
Fralipo Lippi's response to this kind of criticism. He says, now, is this sense, I ask, uh, says, oh, how, how, a fine way to paint soul by painting body so ill, the eye can't stop there, must go further and can't see and can't fare worse. So you paint the soul by painting the body so badly that you can't think of it? He said, that's crazy. Thus, yellow does for white. He said, well, that, you know, that's like saying, well, it's close enough, yellow, white, you know, you're getting close enough. Um, when what you put for yellows simply black and any sort of meaning looks intense when all besides itself means and looks not, why can't a painter lift each foot in turn, left foot and right foot, go a double step, make his flesh liker and his soul more like, both in their order. Take the prettiest face, the prior's niece, patron saint. It is so pretty, you can't discover if it means hope, fear, sorrow, or joy. Won't beauty go with these? Suppose I've made her eyes all right and blue, can't I take breath and try to add life's flash, and then add soul and heighten them threefold? So he's saying that you know to to get to the soul, you have to start with the 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 body, the reality of it, and then add the soul and make it even better. Um, or say there's beauty with no soul at all. I never saw it, but put the case the same. If you get simple beauty and not else. You get about the best thing God invents. So that's the heart of the uh, uh, philosophy of art that Fralipo Lippi has here. If you get simple beauty and not else, you get about the best thing God invents. So he's going to celebrate God not by talking, by making abstract paintings that refer to the soul, but by showing the simple beauty of the real physical world around him. Now, one of the wonderful things about a dramatic monologue is that it makes it uh, very interesting to figure out, well, what does Browning think? You know, in a Wordsworth poem, you know exactly what Wordsworth thinks. He's telling you what he thinks in the poem. But is this exactly Browning's theory of art? Uh, he presents Fralipo Lippi as a character, uh, a character who seems very sensual. You know, he says, you know, you shouldn't, uh, 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 you should not take a fellow eight years old and make him swear to never kiss the girls. Uh, so we see that there's a, a there are non-spiritual motives that Fralipo Lippi has for the kind of painting that he does. Uh, at the same time, it's a very strong argument that he makes, and he certainly wins it within the poem. But one of the, the brilliant things about a, a dramatic monologue is that doesn't prove that it's the way that Browning felt about the, the issue. Uh, it allows him to kind of express ideas uh, and dramatize them in a more indirect way than you would ever get in a romantic poem. And we see that there's an, another uh, uh, meditation on the nature of art in the, the poem Andrea del Sarto, which are called The Faultless Painter. And once again, this is a real historical painter. Um, and here we get the presentation of it, his relationship with his wife, Lucrezia. Uh, and apparently his, it was, he spent quite a great deal, the real Andrea del Sarto spent quite a deal of money 
uh, trying to please his wife and never quite succeeding. Uh, but we get this painter who is at the same time as the great Renaissance painters as uh, Raphael and Michelangelo and Leonardo da Vinci. And we get his, his thing, I never kind of quite lived up to them. Um, he said, but I'm the, the, the faultless painter. He, he keeps saying that uh, the, the arm is wrongly put. He's looking at a picture of, of Raphael and said, look, that, that arm isn't correct. But these painters that he thinks he is technically better than, they have something that he doesn't. They have a kind of a, a soul to their paintings. You know, he says around line 100, all is silver gray, placid and perfect with my art. The worse. So he realizes he doesn't have the, the, the spark that they have. He says, uh, line uh, 79, there burns a truer light of God in them. In their vexed, beating, stuffed and stopped up brain, heart or whatever else, then goes on to prompt that this low-pulsed, forthright craftsman's hand of mine. Their works drop groundward, but themselves, I know, reach many a time a heaven that's shut to me. Enter and take their place there sure enough, though they come back and cannot tell the world. My works are nearer heaven, but I sit here. So he says, I, I may be the faultless painter, I may get every detail right, but I don't, I, I never have that transcendent moment. Um, and there are a couple of very famous uh quotations in this poem. He says that a man's reach should exceed his grasp, or what's a heaven for? Of course, they're reaching for something higher than him. He's doing perfectly this kind of little mundane thing, whereas Michelangelo and Leonardo are, are reaching for the stars. Um, and I, I, it, there's also the whole undercurrent of the poem of his relationship with his wife and his regret that having to come back to her uh, he lost his chance to work at the, in the court of France. Um, all of that, again, that psychology comes into it. And again, it's very hard to tell how much is uh, Browning undermining his the, the viewpoint expressed here, how much is he endorsing it. Uh, and he remains very cagey about not being clear on either of those. So it, it makes it more difficult. You can't read these uh, Browning poems in the same straightforward way you could read uh, a romantic poem, you know, the Byron or, or Wordsworth, because it's always a character speaking. It's a mask. Um, it's uh, And he's always ironizing it in some way, undercutting the speaker. All of his dramatic speakers, even the ones that he seems to endorse, seem very human and have real weaknesses. Um, some of them really big ones because they're murdering their wives. Um, but even the more sympathetic ones uh, always are, are uh, undercut with some kind of dramatic irony. Uh, well, we'll um, leave Browning. And next time, I would like you to read Robert Louis Stevenson's The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Now, we're going to be spending a couple of classes on this, and I'll probably only get about halfway through the story uh, next time, but I would like you to read the whole story, and it, it's fairly short, uh, before we start going through it, because it, it's important to know the whole thing, to see how Stevenson sets things up. 
Now, you probably know generally the story of Jekyll and Hyde. It's become a, you know, just a, a motif in our culture. But I want you to think very carefully about how Stevenson lays out the story. Who is, who is the narrator or narrators? How is information presented to us? How do we learn things? And pay particular attention to what we learn about Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and when we learn it. Uh, what uh, what are those two characters? What's the difference between them? So let me, again, thank you for your attention, and I will talk to you about uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde next time.